Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from the earlier years of the podcast. This week, it's the best of love stories. All kinds of love stories. Happy ones, bittersweet ones and ones to grow on. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Nina Davis and Madison Perry. But before that, Risk's own story producer and one of our trainers who does our corporate workshops over at thestorystudio.org, it's Brad Lawrence, who you can find at bradlawrencestoryteller.com. And here he is now with a story we first ran in August of 2013, a story we call, Let Me Sleep On It. I was uh, 23 years old and working at a bookstore in St. Louis. And one of the main features of this bookstore was this sort of grand stairwell that connected the two floors. It was really late at night. We had closed the store, and after closing, we were all cleaning our various sections and whatever else. And I was assigned the uh, mystery section, which is at the bottom of the staircase. And I'm cleaning the mystery section all by myself, and I have this song stuck in my head. And so I am singing to myself as I'm cleaning the section, Let me sleep on it, baby, baby, let me sleep on it. Let me sleep on it and I'll give you an answer in the morning. And I'm doing this when all of a sudden I hear from the top of the grand staircase, someone, a female voice, reply, I gotta know right now, will you love me? And this is how I meet Carrie. And I step out from the mystery section and I look up and she's coming down the stairs and we proceed to do the entire duet until we are on meeting on the landing at the bend in the staircase sort of face-to-face doing the, it was cold and lonely, like doing the entire nine yards. And as we're doing this, our fellow employees are now sort of peeking furtively out from the stacks of books like forest animals, and they're seeing us do this, and they're thinking what they will be thinking for the next three years. 
and that is, when are these two gonna do it? This became an inseparable friendship, which was not hurt at all by the fact that Carrie kind of fell into exactly everything I look for in a woman, and it's hard for me to say if Carrie fit the ideal or if Carrie made the ideal the minute I saw her. She had a sort of Holly Golightly kind of thing to her. If Holly Golightly could potentially kick your ass and make you feel bad about yourself at the same time. She wasn't saccharine. She was sharp and smart. And she was not afraid of letting you know that immediately. And this just set me on my heels and kept me there, which apparently was exactly where I wanted to be because I followed her around like a puppy dog. And she seemed more than content to have me and would in fact like sort of arrange things for us to do activities, mainly things that she thought I would hate. She kind of seemed to like to watch me get worked up. Apparently I entertained her most when I was angry about what I had just seen. Performance art is usually bad in major arts capitals. By the time performance art, installation performance art, has filtered down to St. Louis, Missouri, you're not getting grade A installation performance art. I barely remember what they did. It involved people in tights. I went sort of blind with rage upon seeing the people in the flesh tone tights. And to this day, I have like a real aversion to anything that mimics skin. I just find it horrifying. And I think that's probably what I was ranting on that made Carrie think, we'll do this every weekend. We were spending all of our time together. And all of this brought about a kind of two-person language, a sort of code, a set of nods and facial expressions and inside jokes and little gestures. And, you know, we both knew what those things meant. And this made us insufferable to be around for anyone else. And we would go out with other people. We would go out with coworkers and, and, and our friends. And they would be like, you guys are so annoying. And, and by the way, when are you going to just go ahead and do it and get it over with? So all this annoyance you've cost us will pay off. And my friends would say, you've got a crush on Carrie. My girlfriend, Lee, would say, you've got a crush on Carrie. <laughs> and I would say, I do not have a crush on Carrie. Carrie's my friend. We're just friends. I don't have a crush on Carrie. Relax. And I would think to myself, I am so in love with Carrie <laughs> that I don't know what to do. And I know that that went both ways because that tension would build. It would build to the point where separately, on two separate occasions, both of us started fights with one another just so we could get away from the situation. The fights were started over ridiculous things because at that point, You've got to do something. The tension is built so much, and you either have to commit and do what you really want to do, or you have to allow yourself to escape and stage a conflict that allows you to run away. And both of us did that, and we didn't speak for a month each time. And then that month would go by, and one would call the other, I'm really sorry, I really miss you, there's a foreign film you'll hate, well, let's go see it next weekend. <laughs> and so off we'd go. And this was the pattern of things, if not particularly satisfying. It was sustainable for a while. And then at some point, but my girlfriend Lee and I, we hit the skids. This dovetailed nicely with the fact that Lee's work was transferring her to Michigan. 
and it came down to the point where we'd been fighting for months, but we both knew she was going to leave soon. And I don't know the logic behind not breaking up. <laughs> There's a sort of secret agreement we both just kind of hold on until she left. And then we wouldn't have to do anything painful we couldn't forgive one another for. And here we are. It's about three days before she's going to leave. And I go hang out with Carrie. And you would think if it really meant something, you'd be spending all of your time with the person who's getting ready to leave. But no, I'm making time for Carrie, he'll still be here when Lee's gone. And we go out and we see a movie and we have dinner and we drag the evening out as we always do. We end up in a park. Walking around a park in the middle of the night and having this long conversation. And there was something in the air or maybe some, you know, Lee's impending departure. I don't know what it was, but for some reason this this conversation suddenly took a turn towards what was really going on, what was really there. A turn we had always avoided. And it just kind of comes out. And how it finally comes out is that we've, we've walked the entire park, we've worked our way back around to our cars, and we're standing by the cars, and I finally say to Carrie, it's just when you know that there is something else, someone else for you, do you know what I mean? And Carrie looked me in the eyes and she said, yes, I do. And that's it. Everything had fallen away. All of the maneuvering around this we had done for three years suddenly just dropped and there is this one foot of empty space between me and her and all I have to do to have everything I've wanted for three years is reach through that one foot of empty space and instead I fucked it up I looked at her and I said, I cannot do this right now. I have to end things the right way with Lee. And this is blinding stupidity. I can't do this right now. If not right now, when? Three years. And if not right now, now's it. Now's the time. But I, I say this thing and when I say it to her, I see Carrie's eyes drop, and I know, I know for a fact in this moment that this is the last opportunity I was ever going to get at this. This is the last opportunity I was ever going to get with Carrie at all, in any way. Because I know right there in that moment, I know I've lost Carrie. I know her very well. And I know she has this kind of rom-com idea of romance that she uses as a shield. And... She's a smart woman. She knows it's bullshit. But she also knows that if she has that up, if someone can't complete the rom-com perfect moment romantic formula, if they don't do that, then she knows she's never making a mistake. And the thing that Carrie dreads the most is making a mistake. And she let her guard down, and it turns out, to both of our horror, that I was a mistake. 
and I know she can't have that, and I know I've lost her, and I'm right, because I see Carrie one more time after that, and I never see Carrie again, and this haunts me for years. Every time I go through a breakup, every time I find myself alone, feeling miserable and sorry for myself, I think back on Carrie and on that one moment that night in the park and how I screwed that moment up. And what I tell myself in those dark, dark nights when I am so alone and so sad is that the reason I will be so alone and so sad forever and ever and ever is because I had the one, she was right there within my reach, and I fucked it up. And because I fucked it up, I am doomed. And then I met a girl and I fell in love and I got married. I met her while I was wearing a dress and she was wearing a mummy outfit um, that she was actually stripping out of. She was go-go dancing at a bar. <laughs> I determined not to hit on the go-go dancer until I was really good and drunk. And then I got really good and drunk. And she humored me. She consented to go on a date. And the rest really is history. I mean, it, it, it was just sort of when you, when you find someone who rearranges your entire world and, you know, introduce you to a whole different side of life and you realize, oh, this is what I've been looking for the entire time. You stop dwelling on every mistake you've ever made and start thinking about every possibility that lies before you. That's the huge difference. I had that now and it was wonderful. But then Facebook does the thing that Facebook does. And suddenly, thanks to the internet, I have reason to think about Carrie again, and I have not thought about Carrie because I'm not thinking about my mistakes. But now, thanks to Facebook, I'm confronted with this, and I have to sort of think about Carrie again. And I'm thinking about her, but how I'm thinking about her has changed because my mistakes are not, they don't have romantic comedy stakes anymore because I'm not living that fantasy. Nowadays, when I make a mistake, she lets me back up and try again until I get it right. It's never make or break. About two or three months into us being together, we were at a bar and she was talking to a guy. I knew they had gone on a couple of dates. And then when I walked up to say hello, she introduced me as her friend. And it was a hissy fit. <laughs> let's be frank. It was an unseemly scene. <laughs> and I marched out, all indignant, certain I'd been wronged. Basically, in reality, she loathed the guy, didn't want to discuss her current relationship or how that had come about. She basically was like, being polite, getting out. I walk in for like the tail end of that, take one thing wrong, have a fit, and she basically just kind of watched me spin my wheels, let it all sort of peter out, told me everything I've just told you and then waited for me to grovel the appropriate amount. And it was done, and it was over, and we moved on. She was entirely confident I had learned whatever lesson I needed to learn. Nothing was ripped asunder for all times, because we would just move forward. And so now, confronted with Facebook and Carrie again, and sort of thinking about that life and that time and that night, 
I don't think about it in the same way. Because the thing I didn't understand when I was making that horrible mistake is that real love is about being allowed to make mistakes. And anything else is just a crush. When I was in fifth grade on Valentine's Day, I was on recess and three girls walked up to me in the field and one of them was DJ. And DJ had been courting me for the last few weeks. She presented me with a chocolate heart and it was a big chocolate heart. It was probably the the size of a, a fist, like an adult fist. It was very big and it wasn't hollow, it was solid all the way through. It was wrapped in red foil, and on the top, in in pink lettering, it said, Will you be my valentine? And uh, so I looked at them, and and she was kind of shyly looking away, and her two friends were staring right at me, just grinning ear to ear. And I looked back down at the chocolate, and I don't know why, but I ripped open the foil and proceeded to shove the entire thing into my mouth. Except it was such a big piece of chocolate, it wouldn't really fit. So I just kind of had to gnaw on it, gnaw on it, and start to liquefy it so I could continue to push the chocolate heart into my mouth. And they just sat there and watched me while I tried to eat this chocolate. About three-quarters of the way through the chocolate, I realized I wasn't going to be able to finish it. I could barely breathe. I was so clogged up with chocolate. And so I spit it out onto the grass right there. This giant sort of gelatinous loogie came out of my mouth and just a string all the way to the ground. And and so she, I stood up after spitting out the chocolate, and she looked at me, and she said, So will you go out with me now? And I said, No. And I went and played kickball. So that night, my mom at dinner, as she always did, said, What happened at school today, honey? And I told her that a girl had given me a chocolate heart and asked me if I would be her boyfriend. She said, Oh, that's so cute. What did you say? So I told her no. And my mom said, Well, you know, that means you have to give the chocolate back. That's how that works. And I said, I can't. And she said, Why not? I said, I ate it. She said, What do you mean? When did you eat it? said, uh, right after she gave it to me. So my mom said, let me get this straight. She gave you the chocolate, you immediately ate it, and then you told her you wouldn't date her? Yeah, that was pretty much how it went, I said. And so she said, she made me promise that I would apologize the next day. So uh, because I thought I knew everything, I figured I'll solve this. Instead of apologizing, I'll just go out with DJ. That will fix everything. So I I asked her out, uh, by which I mean I told my friends to tell her friends to tell DJ that I'd go out with her. So we were going out. And so the next day I went to school and uh, kind of had that nervous feeling to see DJ. And before we got into class, my my good friend Brian grabbed me and he said, I have something to tell you, but I can't tell you here. Meet me at the soccer field at recess. So at recess, I walked out there with him and uh, we made sure we were alone. He said, I just talked to Michelle last night and she told me DJ at a sleepover party stuck a tube of chapstick in her vagina. And I didn't, I didn't quite know what a vagina was, but I knew that was not good. And, and you know a story like that has to be true. 
So I immediately decided I have to break up with DJ. So I, I told her we couldn't go out anymore, by which I mean I told my friends to tell her friends to tell her we weren't going out anymore. So that was my first relationship. It lasted about 18 hours, I think. And uh, we didn't say one word to each other. A month before I turned 14, it was 1973. It was the summer between eighth grade and ninth grade. And we were moving in just a few days from New Jersey to Fort Lauderdale. And my mom decided that she wanted to go out to the Jersey shore and say goodbye to some really close friends. And so we arrived in the night on July 3rd and we must have gotten there so late that I didn't even remember coming into the house. And when I woke up in the morning, there was so much light coming into my bedroom, just streaming in. And my bedroom had sliding glass doors. And I went and I stood there and I could see the ocean. So I got dressed really fast because I wanted to explore. And I, I walked outside, there was a huge wraparound porch. I was on the second floor. And as I started to walk down the steps, there was a house right next door and a boy was coming out of his house. I got down to the bottom of the steps. At the very same time, he had left his house and was walking across the beach. We met there right in the middle between the two homes. And we just stood there. This was the most beautiful boy I had ever seen. He had chocolate black thick straight bangs and he was a little bit taller than I was and he was solidly built and we just stood there looking at each other and it was as if a bubble had just come down from the sky and surrounded us. It was as if nothing around us was happening. We could look at each other and, and we were total strangers to each other. But it was this peaceful, peaceful, at ease feeling. And then Franco burst out of the house. Franco was the son of my parents' closest friends. We were the exact same age. We had essentially grown up together. And he was so excited that I was there for the day. And he came running towards us and he said, Nina, Nina, this is David. David, this is Nina. And we're going to do so many great things today. And he was rattling on about all the things that we were going to do. And David and I are just standing there, staring into each other's eyes. And I swear, I felt as if I was falling in love. this point in my life, as far as boys were concerned, I had boys that were friends, boys that I liked. I was so awkward and clumsy, but none of this was happening with this boy, David. I felt none of that. I wasn't nervous. I felt so calm and in unison 
As Franco is jabbering away, we just turn and we walk towards the ocean. And I know that Franco tried to keep up with us, but I think he was actually bounced back by our bubble and he eventually just wasn't there anymore. And when we got to the ocean, the very first words that David ever said to me were, which way do you want to go? And I said, it doesn't matter. And because that was July 4th, people were setting up their barbecues on the beach. They were staking out their, their places, even that early in the morning. And we would wander from one group to the next and they would be really welcoming and tell us to come back later and what they were gonna be serving. And I'm pretty sure that David knew all of these people because this wasn't a summer home for him. This was actually his only home. We spent that day in each other's company, talking about everything, talking about our fears, our hopes, dreams, what we wanted to be when we grew up. And David knew that he wanted to do something with music because when he'd gone back to his house and gotten his guitar, he had started to play for me. And he, he was unbelievably talented. Any song I said, he could play it. And he had the most beautiful, voice. Finally, we had some time where we weren't bumping into other people on the beach and we ended up on a dock where there was a light at the end of the dock. So we weren't in the darkness and we got to watch the fireworks go off and we were in each other's arms and we had been kissing and kissing all day in the most natural way. And he was holding me and playing his guitar at the same time as he was holding me. And it was as if we just couldn't get enough of simply touching, touching our fingers together. And at some point I realized I truly had fallen in love with this boy and I wanted to make love with him and it would have been my first time and I told him so and he said Nina no no first of all we're on a dock anybody could walk down this dock and it turned out that he had already had sex and it hadn't been this wonderful, loving experience that it should have been because the girl and he were not in love. And he said, your first time, it should be so wonderful and you're leaving, you're moving to Fort Lauderdale and I may never ever see you again. This is not the right time and place for you. And he said, but I want to give you something. He said, I want to give you this song because you're going to need this song. This song will be your song and this song will help you and protect you. And so he sang me Cat Stevens' Baby Baby It's a Wild World. And then that was my song. And I had given him something too. As the sun went down, I had given him my jean jacket to wear. and. Uh, 
eventually it really was time to say goodbye. It was at one o'clock in the morning. We had spent the entire day together since about 7.30 in the morning. And I knew my mom was frantically looking for me. And I said, tell me your last name and I will never forget it. And he said, Rhinebeck. It's David Rhinebeck. And I said, okay. And we hugged one last time. I got into the back of my mom's car and I said, David Rhinebeck, David Rhinebeck, David Rhinebeck, all the way home. After that, we moved to Fort Lauderdale and many Fourth of Julys passed. And I started to measure all of the years by the Fourth of July. And so eventually, I was up north again. I was going to college. I spent one weekend driving down to Pennsylvania to see my father. And he told me that of all people, Franco was going to Penn State. And I was so excited because I'd never stopped thinking of David. And I knew that if anybody knew where David was, Franco would be that person. So I called him up. He came over to my dad's. And we're sitting across the kitchen table in my dad's kitchen, just Franco and I, and he's very, very handsome. And he knows how handsome he is. But to me, Franco and I might as well have been cousins. I mean, we'd known each other forever. And I could see some disgruntledness as we were talking, because what I was talking about was how I had fallen in love at first sight with David that summer. Franco was so not interested. This story had nothing to do with him. So when I asked him if he knew how I could get a hold of David, he sort of smirked and he told me that he heard that David had been in a terrible boating accident where the engine of the boat had exploded and that he had been severely burned and he, and he thought that he had died. And I said, Franco, how do you know this? How do you know that he died? How do you know? And he said, I don't know actually if he died, okay. But I know that he has to be crippled and he has to be severely deformed. And I pressed him for more information because I didn't care if David was deformed or crippled. He was alive, and that is all I cared about. And Franco was not forthcoming with any more information, but I trusted him. I believed he knew nothing else. I mean, this was essentially a family member to me. And that was that. And then many more Fourth of Julys went past, and the Internet started, and you could search for people. And at this point in my life, I had fallen in love. Many times, I'd never fallen in love at first sight, but I had fallen in love with a man enough to be very happily married and have a son with him. So I was not mooning over David. I just had to make sure David was okay out there, and then I would feel okay. But nothing would ever come up in my searching. So a few more Fourth of Julys went past, and Facebook happened. And guess who wanted to be my friend on Facebook? 
It was Franco. So this time I played it a little bit more cool. I traded emails with him for about three weeks. Then we had long conversations on the phone. And finally, maybe a month or two months of this, I felt like I wouldn't scare him away by asking about David. And I said, Franco, that summer on the beach, that boy, David Rhinebeck, I have never stopped thinking about him. Can you remember anything about his mom, his dad? Can you think of any way that I could find him? And Franco said, well, first of all, you have his name wrong. It's not David Rhinebeck, it's David Rhinebach. And he said, I think he is doing rock opera. And I said, great. First of all, it's music. Second of all, it's so esoteric. I know I'll be able to find him. So I thank Franco and I start searching all over again. And this is crazy, but I find him. He is the backup guitarist on a woman that has a rock opera CD on her own website. And I contact her and she calls me. And I tell her all about love at first sight and the summer of 1973 and the 4th of July. And she loves the story. And she said, this is so amazing, Nina, because David Reinbach left my band two months ago and he moved to Fort Lauderdale. And my heart skips a beat. But she says, I don't think he's your David because I don't think he was born in 1973. I think he's about 35 years old. And at this point, I think I'm about 49 or 50. And I said, oh, this is not my David. And I thank her. And as we're saying goodbye to each other, she says, wait, wait. Oh my, I think I know who you are looking for, but you have his name wrong. She said, it's David Ryan West and he does do rock opera. So I thanked her, I hung up, and I started to search again. And unbelievably, I found a video of a man playing guitar and dancing, and he had blonde, spiky hair. And my David had chocolate black, thick bangs. But I took my fingers and I blocked out these blonde spikes and I saw David and I was so relieved. He was alive, he, he looked pretty happy, he was playing music and I only took it one step further. I googled his name in the white pages and I, there was a phone number and I called it and an answering machine came on and it, it had his voice and I left a message, I said, hi, this is Nina, and I have a story for you. And then I forgot about it. It was maybe nine o'clock that night when the phone rang, and the last thing I was thinking of was David. And I answered the phone and I said, hello. And there was this voice that said, hi, this is David, and I understand you have a story for me. And I could not breathe. Oh, I was trying so hard. I was trying to talk and I was stumbling over my words and he said, whoa, now wait a minute. When you left the message, I couldn't understand your name. Could you just repeat your name for me? And I took a really deep breath 
And I said, Mina, my name is Mina. And there was this silence. And, and he said, oh, Mina, I kept your jean jacket for so many years. I could still smell you. And I, I felt so validated. I felt like, wow, I had made this human connection, this incredibly intense connection so many years ago. And he had too, and it was reciprocated. He had never forgotten me either. And we talked and we talked, we talked for hours. And we talked just as freely as we had that summer, that day on the 4th of July. And it turns out that I had reason to be worried about him all of those years and concerned that he was all right because he hadn't been all right. In fact, when ninth grade started, he didn't even make it through that school year. He left home. He ended up in New Orleans. He was living on the street. He had his guitar. Uh, he was a heroin addict. And he eventually made his way to New York City. And this angel of a man came up to him one day and said, I hear you playing all the time, and I want to know where you get your material. And David said, I write it all myself, it's all mine. And the man said, I'd like you to come with me. And he took David to a very prestigious music school in the Northeast. And they interviewed David and they offered him a full scholarship on the spot. And they took it away just as fast when they found out that he had never finished high school. So David went back and he got his act together. He quit drugs, he got his GED, and he went back to that school, and he got his degree in music, and he met a wonderful, beautiful woman to fall in love with and marry, and he had beautiful children, and everything was great. He was loved. Someone was taking care of him, and it was the best news that I could have heard. I was just so happy that someone that I had cared about so deeply for only a day that everything had indeed turned out wonderfully for them. What I think is so interesting about this story is that I think when people hear it, they assume they know where it's going and how it's going to end up, that David and I will ride off into the sunset. But that was never my intention when I contacted him. I felt like I just needed to check and see if he was okay. And to find out that he was loved and to see pictures of his kids and one of them looked exactly like David did when he was 14. I, I couldn't have felt more generosity of the spirit. I just was truly, 
truly at peace. I didn't have to worry about him anymore. This risk. That was Nina Davis with a story called Remember You Like a Child that first ran on Risk in August of 2013. And before that, we heard the Chapstick Twist that first ran on the podcast in November of 2009 by Madison Perry, who you can find at madisonperry.com. We hope you enjoyed these love stories. If you've got a story about love, pitch it to us. Hey, even stories about deep friendship and especially stories about relationships that hit the rocks and very nearly ended forever. But somehow the connection was mended and the ship sailed on. Everything you need to know about pitching us is at risk show.com slash submissions. And for all our other special series, like the Best of Risk Happy Stories, or Scary Stories, or Funny Stuff, go to risk-show.com slash special series. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>